Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. Well, in our culture, when we hear about a sabbatical, we think about a break uh, from a normal routine. And so it's basically you have a sabbatical, you get back to work. Uh, the other way we can talk about a sabbatical is not always so nice, but there's a way in which you can say somebody is on a permanent sabbatical. And when we say something like this, it's generally a nice way of saying that the person has been dismissed. And so we don't normally think of that as being a good sabbatical. However, in terms of Hebrews, it's actually presenting for us this notion and concept of an eternal sabbatical, a sabbatical that never ends. And it's presenting this sabbatical as something that's so contrary to our culture, because it's not negative. It's something that's very positive, something that uh, we should desire and not see this as some sort of a curse where uh, we are permanently dismissed from a particular position. And so when, when we hear this, we might say, well then, why would we want to strive for a permanent sabbatical or a permanent rest uh, when in our culture or our understanding we might see this uh, as meaning that we are dismissed or fired uh, from our particular job? Well, as we consider this, we'll see first our future rest, second, we will see our promised rest, and lastly, we will see our ascended rest or the definitive uh, rest and, and what we have in Christ. And so let's begin with the future rest in verses 1 through 5. Now when we hear this, we find that there is this promise, this declaration, this, this shock that we are those who are called to enter this rest. Uh, we're exhorted to do so. And the shocker is that there are those who have failed to reach it. So when we hear this, we say, well then, what does this mean? That we have this call to strive of desiring to enter this, this final and future rest. We're prone to wander, and as we're prone to wander, what does this fundamentally mean, and how does this fundamentally work? Well, I think it's important to understand the context. And as I uh, did our call to worship from Psalm 96 and a grouping of psalms from Psalm 93 to 100, uh, we move from basically celebrating God to entering into his presence, celebrating his kingdom to a sojourn that moves us to the fundamental entrance into uh, the wilderness or into the full rest of God, into his holy city. So as we enter into that holy city in Psalm 100, there's that movement. So Psalm 95, uh, the author of Hebrews has drawn a lot of exhortations from that uh, with a reminder that there are those in Israel who tested God. And remember, this testing God means you're asking God to prove who he is. Uh, you're not trusting in what God has already established and what God has already uh, ordained and what he has stated he will do. And so when, when you hear this, say, okay, so there are those who have gone before us. It seems the pattern is there's an exodus, there's works, and as we do these works, then we have to enter the Lord's rest. And as we enter into the Lord's rest, 
Uh, then we arrive at a state of perfection, but up to that point, we better work very hard. At least that's what it sounds like. And if we look at the context of uh, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 with this Sabbath exhortation, uh, the word that's used here in the Greek is a word that communicates a, a struggle, a working, and then a ceasing from that working. Uh, so, for instance, we have in 3 verse 11 where it's used, we have a warning uh, that the people will not enter the Lord's rest. Uh, 3 verse 18, the ones who are disobedient, the Lord declared, would not enter his rest. 4 verse 5, a warning that they will not enter my rest. 4 verse 10, the same thing, they have not entered my rest. 4 verse 11, a warning and an, ent- and an ex- exhortation uh, to truly strive to enter the Lord's rest. So when we hear this, we say, my goodness, this seems rather weighty, uh, that we are those who can have the promise of God and then we can lose the very promise of God. So how do we know if we're going to enter the Lord's rest? Is it possible even? Or is this something that's never going to happen? Well, clearly what, what we find in this rest is it is a future hope. It's a future reality, a future promise. As the author goes on, he cites from Genesis 2, verse 2, uh, calling to our attention uh, the Lord's uh, entering into his rest, the Lord who is the one who has created, and then the Lord enters into that definitive final rest. And so it, it seems that, that this rest that's held out is this rest that's at the end of the creation week, the, the rest that God enters into, the fulfillment of what Psalm 100 promises, that we will be in the presence of God. And so we say, okay, there's obviously a, a fear that we have, that we see a precedent, that there are those who have not attained it. So how do we fundamentally know today If we are a people who are destined to attain this rest, or if today we are a people who are just going to wander, meander, and and wonder at the end of of this age and the final judgment of God, are we going to do enough good works to counteract the bad ones? Is that what's being laid out here in Hebrews? Well, if we go through this, you notice that I left out one reference. And this reference is very important. For we have in Hebrews 4, verse 3, For we are those who have believed, enter the rest. As he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works are finished from the foundation of the world. Now we notice then that there is an identification here. There's a believing ones who will enter his rest. And so if we think back to this precedent, we, we have to note that not every single individual in terms of the wilderness uh, community fell short of the Lord's rest because we have Joshua and Caleb. And what did Joshua and Caleb say to the people of God in this time? If God goes before us, we can take the land. There's nothing for us to fear. And so for those two men, they said, no matter what we see with the mighty Nephilim, the mighty warriors, the mighty ones who are in the land. If God is fighting on our behalf as our shield and defender, we will take the land. 
And so there's not a testing to say, well, let's see if God's faithful enough or, or let's set up something else and make God prove himself to us. No, it's the assurance. We will take the land. And so as we have these believing ones, what are they believing in? They're believing in the promises of God. And so the precedent that Hebrews is calling to our attention is where there are individuals who are doubting the sufficiency of Christ and whether he really is our, our redeemer and our priest. It's a reminder that in the Old Testament, what were they fundamentally looking to? What, what, what were the individuals fundamentally looking to? The coming Messiah. The manifestation of God's promise. The belief that Christ is the one who is ours. That we are those, as we find in Hebrews 3, verse 14, the assurance that for we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence. And so he's building on that theology from chapter 3. So it's not just, let's make sure we do enough good works. Now, of course, we're called to bring forth works of gratitude. We should desire works of gratitude. But we do this in the power of the Spirit, not in our own confidence, not in who we are. But going on then, we find that it's not just in the previous context. We find in 4 verse 2, there's underscoring this understanding of the believing ones. Because we have in 4 verse 2, For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So now we have the fundamental distinction in the community that's important. And so before we, we just rush into this call for us basically to justify ourselves by our own covenant faithfulness or to say that our works complement the works of Christ, we have here the fundamental distinction. There are those who are looking to the Redeemer and there are those who are not. The ones who look to the Redeemer are those who have the benefit of their confession. They are those who are truly united and joined to their Lord. But notice how Hebrews builds this. It's not just united to their Lord, but united to the saints throughout the ages. So think about how profound this is, as this will continue to be developed in, in, in terms of Hebrews. Especially in Hebrews chapter 11, moving to chapter 12. You think of Hebrews 11 as a sojourning saint's sojourning in the invisible power of God. Hebrews 12, the arrival at the conclusion, Psalm 100, we, we, we could say. Here we have that very reminder that these same saints were looking to the same Christ under a promise. We look to the Christ who has come under the realization of his redemptive blessings. But the beauty of how he puts us of being united to them by faith continues on with that testimony of Abel's blood speaking of God's mercy and what God has done. This also communicates to us that we are identified with the believing Israelites uh, throughout covenant history. They are our heirs, our co-heirs. We're their heirs and co-heirs in the sense that we share in the same blessings. This is very unifying in terms of Old Testament Israel, the church, coming together, sojourning to the same heavenly city with our orientation on this goal. And so the author of Hebrews 
is basically putting his arm around us, pointing us through this age and saying, listen, there are a lot of things that are going to test you. A lot of things are going to upset your faith. A lot of places where you are going to be tempted to question the goodness of God. But you're not alone. The Israelites did this. They did this at Meribah. They did this in the wilderness when the spies came back. Israel did this. And in the midst of that, some of them fell away. And why was that? Because the fundamental problem was they did not believe the promise of the gospel. So the author of Hebrews is not presenting to us a flippant God. Well, my promise is good there, but maybe not so much here. Say, no, this is a God who is very consistent. And the assurance we take from that precedent, there is a warning. They fell away in the wilderness. They experienced God's judgment. Now, whether they definitively entered the rest of God, the rabbis, the sages uh, argue that point. But it's not really for us to argue. That, that's not what the author of Hebrews is inviting us to do. What he's inviting us to do is to see that Old Testament pattern and precedent. The ones who doubted the promise of God did not reap any benefits from that doubt. The ones who believed the promises of God were not disappointed. They received the fullness of what God had promised them. So the author of Hebrews is saying, Therefore, in the midst of testing, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of wanting to chuck the Christian faith, where do we turn? We meditate on the promises of God. And as we meditate in the promises of God, we continue to look within ourselves and see what's not in line with the promises of God. That's the invitation here. To bring our lives in alignment to consistently believe that God really is a shield and defender. That that eternal Sabbath is really the, the ultimate rest, the ultimate entrance that we strive for. And so we may say, okay, verses 1 through 5 basically laying out this theoretical promise, right? We hear of the Old Testament Sabbath. But, but for us, how do we know that this is really an assurance for us? How do we know this is fundamentally our promise? So now we look at verses 6 through 10 where we find our promised rest. Now in this, we know that the first five uh, verses communicate to us a pattern from Israel. Some failed to enter. We know that at least two entered that rest in the midst of the first generation. We know it's Joshua and Caleb who entered the rest. Joshua ultimately leading the people in the conquest of the land. And so the Lord was faithful to his promise. And so we have that precedent. But now we find that as we hear this, we find that it remains for some to enter it, receive good news, uh, failed because of disobedience. And so when, when we hear this, say, okay, now we find he appoints a certain today, today saying through David so long afterward, the words already quoted. So what he's appealing to here is a, a precedent, not notice the Holy Spirit, but here it's David, the author. So he's calling to our attention uh, the actual man who was inspired to write the Word of God. Now, as you can imagine, there's great debate as to why this happens. But it seems to me he's calling to our attention who is the king. And what is David fundamentally looking to? David's not looking to David. David's not saying, praise God, he has raised me up in the line of Judah. 
fact, we find David being mentioned as one of the heroes of the faith. And in other times in Hebrews chapter 7, there's a reference uh, to the priestly order that comes through the line of Judah. And so here, he seems to be presenting David as a, the, the great king. Now, he's not talking about his moral failure. We know that's happened. That's not the focus in Hebrews. Hebrews is talking about David as the king, talking about and presenting David uh, possibly as a priest and introducing that concept, the concept of a priest king who's exhorting Israel to be sanctified unto the Lord. That's set apart uh, to truly uh, live out their holy call as a people in a community before God. And so he's saying we think of David as the one who entered the rest, the ideal king who established a pattern for what the ideal kingship should be in his greater moments. He's also functioning here as a duly called priest, exhorting Israel, reminding Israel, sort of how this is presented, setting the stage for his theology in chapter 7, where you have the Melchizedekian priesthood starting there from the priest-king line of Judah. And so here we, we have that call, one who entered the rest. But he calls to us a, a contrast, for if Joshua had given them rest. So right here we know that Joshua is not one who has given them rest, right? There's that call that he brings them into the land, but there's no rest. Even David concurs with this because he speaks of another day. There remains a Sabbath rest. And so if, if you think about the implications of Psalm 95, obviously that's after the conquest of the land because we also think of David historically after Joshua. And if he's after Joshua and, and he's speaking of us striving to enter a rest, clearly Israel was not experiencing the fullness of the rest. And so again, this is calling to our attention what we've heard in Hebrews. There's the models, there's the types, there's a projections from heaven coming down. We, we've talked about these things and how these earthly replicas and models show the ultimate reality of God communing with his people, but it's still not the full uh, production model. Remember, we talked about the prototype versus a production model. The one that's ultimately established and built is the one that's set in heaven. And it's a call for us now as a New Testament generation, a New Testament people, to want and strive to enter in to that very rest. And so when we hear of this declaration of David being the one uh, who brings this declaration, it's that reminder, historically, Joshua did not accomplish uh, what God has set out for them to do. Now when we go and, and we hear in verse 11, moving on to verse 13. We understand there's a call that we're to enter this rest. We look at verses 11 through 13 prior to verse 14. Jesus, the great high priest, which we'll take up next time. But verses 11 through 13, he, he returns to the strong exhortation of an anticipated rest. We've heard of the promised rest. Joshua didn't establish it. David concurs that Joshua did not establish it. The rest is a rest that Moses has written about of the Lord entering into that final rest. And so now, what does it mean then? In verses 11 through 13, with this call for us to live in light of this anticipated rest, 
and, and this call for us to strive to enter it. Because the reality is, when we hear this, this call for us to strive, it's communicating to us we're not in a time of victory. We're in a time of wilderness. We're in a time of testing. We're in a time where our faith is, is shaken up, where our confidence in our Lord is, is sometimes feels completely dismantled. And we wonder then, well, what is the author of Hebrews fundamentally telling us? If it seems that there may be times when we don't even have our bearing through this age, we think of the precedent that's gone before us, that, that doesn't seem very comforting. Because Israel fell away, at least the majority of Israel, with the exception of two. And so what is he telling us? Well, this striving... In our language as this comes across, and it's hard to communicate what this means. Strive is a good word. But it's an eager desire. And so it's getting not so much as to how many works that one does. It's not calling attention actually like necessarily tangible things. But it's more of how one's orientation is in this age. What is our focus? Well, what is our desire? What do we want? And so it's, it's sort of setting out the, the plan, the, the fundamental desire, if you will. And it means an, an eagerness. Uh, it's an eagerness, an urgency that we want to enter into the Lord's rest. Uh, maybe another way of communicating this from Scripture, where we read of John in Revelation praying, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In other words, it's that eagerness to see the fullness of what's going on. And it's this eagerness of understanding it's, it's real. Because what, what's the temptation? We think of Noah's Ark. And, and we think of the scoffers, as Peter recounts, you know, the, the scoffers that mocked him and saying, oh, where's the coming of your God? Uh, where, when is he going to bring this judgment? Uh, Peter recounts this, that these scoffers are going to come. We hear throughout the New Testament, scoffers are going to come. When is the coming of this Christ, right? We can find throughout a variety of letters. We think of the Thessalonian church uh, struggling whether Christ is coming again. And, and how do we live? Because it seems Christ should have come back by now. Are we abandoned? And so what the author of Hebrews is reminding us is saying, listen, we can have these thoughts enter into our own person." We, we can allow these thoughts to, to come about. We, we can even entertain these thoughts. And the author of Hebrews is saying that this is not a healthy thing to entertain. Because there's a difference between saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, versus is Christ really coming again? And do I really need to worry about it? Is it really something of concern? Those are two different things. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, continue to keep this focus, your orientation, your eagerness, your desire tuned in to the purpose of God. And understand that, that we're called to orient ourselves and to be eager and to want as our first and foremost desire to enter the Lord's rest. We have all the other things that distract us, all the other idols that can get in the way, all the other things that can turn us away from the Lord. But the author of Hebrews is saying, continue to turn your focus and orientation to uh, this eternal rest. And we say, well then, with this eagerness, what, what, what does that really mean? I mean, is it really just a new orientation? Well, we find 
Paul using this in a couple places in Galatians 2.10 uh, where Paul calls individuals to remember the poor and he says he was eager to do so. Uh, to, to the letter of Thessalonians, uh, Paul was more eager to see them face to face. So again, is that desire? Is that living life in light of that plan? In other words, where you're looking, where your focus is, where your life is going to turn and be oriented in that direction. And so right here, verse 14 is saying, just have that eagerness, that orientation, that expectation. Christ is coming again. There is a Sabbath rest. There is a priest who intercedes on your behalf. There is a great Melchizedekian priest who has redeemed you. Put your thoughts here. Continue to orient and live your life in light of that fundamental conviction. He is my shield and defender. He will lead me. These sorts of things. Psalm 93 to 100. The leading of the Lord into the ultimate resting place. But as we have this striving and this tempting that's going on, we notice then that there is this call for us to understand the Word of God. Now, as individuals have gone through this text, some trying to draw these distinctions that are made uh, in terms of man's soul and spirit, saying that man's three parts, that's not really the, the point that's going on here. What he wants us to understand is a temptation to think the Word of God has no power. It's a temptation that can enter our minds. We can think, as Moses asserted something? Does it really have teeth to it? We can think in terms of whether or not the Word of God really transforms and changes us. And what he wants us to understand is this is more than, than just a sword that's carried into war. This is a, a sword that cuts with precision. And so when, when we read this letter, we, we might actually be convicted of things and recognize uh, where we're not living consistently in terms of who we are in Christ, not understanding and having our thoughts and intentions fully tuned into Him. The author of Hebrews is saying this is the Word of God, that the Spirit works through this Word. What has he labored to make the case in the opening of this letter? Jesus Christ is the embodiment, the incarnate word, the incarnate revelation, the one who brings and establishes the promises of God. And so what this is an invitation to do is as we read the word of God and we meditate on the word of God and as we hear the word of God preached as, as a means of grace, to continually meditate on these promises and to basically ask the Lord to search our hearts as we see in the Psalms, that, that the things that are inconsistent with who we are in Christ, that these will bubble to the surface and we would understand what needs to be cut out. And we want it cut out. I mean, that, that's the fundamental thing he's saying. Like, cut these things out of your heart that are distracting you from Christ. Understand what they are. Understand your triggers. Be tuned into this and understand who you are in Christ. Walk in light of this and understand the precedent of the Old Testament. There, there's a lot to lose. We don't want to just lose a, the model of the land. We don't want to lose the reality. So the author of Hebrews is saying, be tuned in. Now, if we don't think that alone is an exhortation that's strong enough, he concludes with something that's rather troubling. And as creatures, this is something that should make us shudder a little bit. 
or a lot, to be honest. In terms of where Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, before they had wonderful fellowship, we talked about this uh, last week, this wonderful fellowship they have with God, then they fall away. And as they fall away, they hide from God. They're, they're ashamed to be in His presence. They're exposed. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, you can be part of the synagogue, which is most likely what's receiving this, and, and, and you can keep up the, the front or, or the facade, but you're not going to fool the Lord. You're not going to come in the Lord's presence and trick Him. I mean, this is a scary thing. You're coming before the definitive judge who rules over heaven and earth. It's not you tangibly look at some rebellion that's there before you, and you can clearly see, well, this is rebellion, and here we, we can actually give uh, the fruits of this rebellion. This is actually the Lord uh, speaking through the author of Hebrews and saying, listen, you will all stand before my face. And as you stand before my face, there is nothing you are going to hide from me. Now when you hear that, and you go through your life and start taking an inventory, I mean, praise God, hopefully we can go through and we can see where the Lord has moved us from one place to another and where we have grown. But we also think back, how do I give a defense for this? How do I give a defense for that? Well, what happens when he asks me about this or that? And this is what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand and to fall to our knees and to be humbled. Because we're not going to stand before the definitive God who rules over heaven and earth, the Joshua priest, and trick him. We are not going to hide anything from him. This is where he's saying, what are you going to hope in? Are you going to hope in the Old Testament promises of a priesthood that died away? Are you going to hope in a tangible religion that was destroyed and dismantled because it was merely a prototype? Is that where we're going to put our hope? Are we going to put our hope in ourselves? What did Israel do when they hoped in themselves, when they hoped with what their eyes would see? Oh, we'll never take the land. God can't do this. That doesn't work out so well either because we're no better than them. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. We can stumble the same way. So what do we do? Well, this is getting into next times, but I wanted to spend more time talking about Christ and how this applies to this section. But just introducing this concept. The author of Hebrews is bringing us to our knees in verse 13. And he calls us then to understand we are not going to do this in our own strength. We're not going to do this in our own merits. We're not going to do this by our own accomplishments. And as the word of God performs its surgery, cutting at our hearts, where are we called to look? To our great high priest who has overcome in our place. As he's going to develop this theology the great high priest who does not need a successor. The great high priest who offers himself on our behalf. This is where the author of Hebrews is reminding us and he's saying, listen, I can understand where you want the types. I can understand you want the prototypes. It's tangible. It's visible. It's, it's something that appeals to us emotionally, just just." as human beings, that we can see there an animal being sacrificed and a, a priest taking its life and we can have her holding our hands over the head of the animal and send it out to the wilderness and these sorts of things. 
The author of Hebrews is saying those are prototypes. They're the first ones to remind the Lord's people that my promise is in effect. And so, as Israel received those prototypes, right? I mean, there's, there's another pattern here that we can't miss that's, that's flowing out. When those who entered the rest, they had the temple. They had the sacrificial system. These were prototypes. These are not things we're called to look to. But what I'm calling to your attention is God took the Exodus people through the wilderness and brought them into the land. So the flip side of this is a reminder, God is faithful to his promise. So the author of Hebrews is saying, now we have to see ourselves on this last sojourn, if you will. That now we've undergone the exodus in Christ. We're sojourning through the wilderness. We, like Israel, are being tested, wondering if God can really fulfill his promises, wondering if he's really a shield and defender, wondering who he really is. And then we understand he will bring us into his rest. Not because we are worthy, but because we've been made worthy in Christ Jesus. So as our Lord chips away at us, and hopefully as we desire the Lord to chip away at us, and to cut into our heart, and to start cutting out the cancerous, sinful things within us, that we continue to turn our eyes unto our Savior and say, Thank you, Lord. Rip these things out of me so I am no longer distracted by these things in this age, that we have a proper perspective. The good things you give me come by your hand. We see them as coming from you. Don't let me cling to them as my hope, but let me continue to cling to my Lord, who is my Redeemer. So when we ask that question, do we really want a permanent sabbatical? That is synonymous, as we would say in our culture, of us being fired. See, even when I say that, it communicates how broken we are in terms of what we understand. Because we, we don't think of a permanent sabbatical as something good. We, we think of it as, as something that's, that's sort of dreadful. But the author of Hebrews is inviting us to, to have our whole mindset redeemed and, and sanctified. To have a mindset where we understand that no matter what we love or appreciate about this age, by God's providence, I'm not saying it's all necessarily evil. God does give us blessings and praise be to God for that. Let us see them as coming from his hand. But he does give us blessings and praise be to God for that. As he gives us those blessings, it's an invitation for us to see beyond those blessings and to recognize our ultimate calls in heaven. We go through our seasons of trial and unrest and testing. It's an invitation for us to look beyond that and say, wait a minute. My Lord is working on me in the midst of this. His promises are still real. It's my perspective, my struggle. I need to keep my perspective on my Lord. That's what Hebrews is exhorting us to do. Whether we're blessed, whether we're struggling, we keep our perspective on the goodness of our God, we trust that he will see us through these times, and we are assured he will bring us to his rest. Let us then strive, let us be eager, let us be oriented in desiring to enter the Lord's rest. Whatever we face in this age, whether it's blessing, whether it's testing, temptation, whatever it may be, 
Let us understand that our God is always faithful to his promises. He fulfills what he has set out to do. Let us see ourselves as a redeemed people, crying out to our great priest king who resides in the glorious heavenly temple. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.